um, Diana Clark. And uh, she uh, has engaged with Buddhism from both the academic and practitioner avenues. As an academic, Diana has a master's degree in Buddhist studies from the Institute of Buddhist Studies, where she now teaches Buddhist studies to graduate students. Uh, she also has a PhD in an unrelated field from Georgetown University. As a practitioner, Diana has cumul cumulatively spent more than a year on silent meditation retreats and practices primarily here at IMC, where she sometimes has the occasion to teach. It's her sincere wish that this symposium helps bring greater awareness interest and appreciation to the roles and contributions of women to Buddhism throughout the ages. Good afternoon. Can you hear me okay? Well, this is nice to see a lot of people smiling at me. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you. And I also want to say thank you to Dawn and Grace for um, your talks this morning. It was really wonderful to kind of talk about pioneering women in the Buddhist studies. And we have some pioneering women here in the room with us. And I'm going to talk a little bit about how women are portrayed in the earliest texts, so some of the pioneering women then, too. But before I talk about some of the specifics, I want to acknowledge something that for me wasn't clear when I first started with Buddhist studies. And that is, as um, Dawn mentioned, that Carolyn Rice Davids had uh, translated the Terigata, and later Ivy Horner was looking at that when she was looking at... Uh, writing her book, Women Under Primitive Buddhism. But there are a number of texts devoted to women, about women, in the earliest Buddhist scriptures. I think this is fantastic. Right? It's that from the earliest times, there are some, um, the capabilities of women are acknowledged and the existence of women are acknowledged, both in the Terigata, but also in the Teriyapadana, which is a collection of book, uh, stories for women in their past lives. There's a chapter in the Bhikkhuni Samyutta on, for nuns, and there's the Matogamo Samyutta a chapter for women in the Samyutta. As well as in the Angudara Nikaya, there's a whole section on kind of listing some of the um, preeminent women who had different capabilities and accomplishments. So I think it's um, kind of like acknowledged that in the Buddhist, earliest Buddhist literature, there's um, quite a bit of information about women by women, about women. In addition, in the other texts, we can see how women were portrayed or viewed by the greater society, including the monks, which preserved the uh, scriptures, by looking at how women are portrayed, not only in those specific texts that are devoted to women, but in all the other ones. And specifically... Today, I'm going to talk about how lay women are portrayed. And she, who is speaking after me, she's going to talk about how nuns are portrayed. So the handout that you have is for she's talk, the one after mine. 
But um, I will, well, I'll, I'll, uh, when we get there, we'll talk about it. So John Kelly, a number of years ago, did this amazing thing where he looked at all the suttas in the Pali Canon and categorized them. And doing this, he determined that there are 26 suttas that are devoted to uh, lay women, where the teachings are specifically for lay women. 26. That's a nice number until you consider that there are over 6,000 uh, suttas. So this is <laughs> less than half, half a percent. But that's okay. There's a lot of things that we can learn just by um, looking at these. So when we look at these um, handfuls of suttas that are for lay women, we can ask ourselves a few questions. And one is, what, what was the nature of the teachings that were given to lay women? What was the goal of the teachings? Specifically, were they about how to achieve awakening? Or were they more about like happiness or having a good rebirth? And when we ask that question, we can see that the vast majority are about happiness in this life and having a good rebirth. That was, most, uh, that was the focus of those talk- talks that were for um, lay women. And then when we look at, well, how were they, um, what were the methods in which they could have a good life and have a good rebirth? What was the, um, the content of the teachings that were given to these lay women? And they were predominantly about kind of their role in society. That is, as wives and mothers. Predominantly about wives. So mostly the talks are about marriage and wives as well as generosity, the importance of being generous. Of course, there's, other, there's talks about you know, following the precepts, and there are some things about meditation, but it's mostly about um, their role in the society and being generous. And it's interesting, when we look at these suttas, we can see that there is um, many of them, six out of the 26, that are given to one particular woman, Visaka who is um, listed as one of the preeminent women. And when we look at the suttas that are given to her, we can see, or the teachings that are given to her, we can see that um, it's a good representation or a representation of teachings for lay women. So I'll start um, with this one. So the Buddha gives like a sermon to Visaka and says to her, Possessing four qualities, a woman is headed towards victory and success in this world. What are the four? First, she is capable in her work. And what does that mean? What is her work? It's domestic things, taking care of things in the household. Two, she manages the domestic help, that is, the servants, the slaves, the messengers, anybody who was part of kind of the extended household was part of the expectation. Three, she behaves agreeably to her husband. (laughs) And that is defined as she doesn't do anything disagreeable to her husband. And four, she safeguards the earnings of her husband. So she's not a thief, she's not stealing from him, and nor is she um, spending money needlessly. So these are the four ways in which a woman could have a good life here and now. And then the Buddha continues. There are four additional things that a woman could do if she'd like to have a good next life, have a good rebirth. 
So in addition to these first four that are clearly linked to her domestic role of in the household as a wife and as one who runs the household, if a woman is accomplished in faith, that is a faith in the Buddha, accomplished in virtuous behavior, that is following the five precepts, accomplished in generosity, and accomplished in wisdom is how a woman can have a good rebirth. So it's interesting that in this way, that a woman's spiritual life is tied to also her kind of domestic life. They're really um, intimately linked in this teaching. And we'll see this theme throughout all of these teachings that are given to lay women. For example, with a second teaching that um, the Buddha gives to Visaka is she, uh, on the Uposatha days, the observance days, which were still observed today, that is, that correspond to the lunar calendar, the Buddha gives her a talk, well, how can she get the most benefit, how can she get the most bang for her buck for this um, practice that she is doing? And uh, he tells her that if she purifies her mind from defilements, she'll get the most benefit from the practices she does. And one way to purify your mind is to do recollection practices. These are formalized practices, bringing to mind and contemplating the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, and a number of other topics. But to make this particularly unique to Visaka, the Buddha adds on that these types of practices should be done with appropriate effort. And then he gives similes. What is appropriate effort? Use the appropriate effort as one would wash one's hair using cleansing paste, clay, and water. Or the appropriate effort for washing one's body with a bathing brush, lime powder, and water. Or use the same amount of effort that one would use to wash one's clothes using heat, lye, cow dung, and water. (laughs) Yes, so I I don't even want to imagine that exactly, but... (laughs) But it's interesting that the similes that are used to kind of send a message are tied to a very kind of a domestic life or maybe more mundane things. I imagine men bathe themselves too, right? But uh, nowhere in the suttas are these kind of instructions or these similes used for men. And then the Buddha tells Visaka if she does this, she will have a good rebirth in in a heavenly realm. But it's not all, all the teachings that uh, Visaka receives from the Buddha are not about how to have a good rebirth. It's also a number of um, teachings to her directly about some tribulation or some difficulty she's having in her life. For example, her, uh, a dear grandchild dies and she's heartbroken. So she goes and with um, wet hair and wet clothes it's not stated. I'm assuming that this is, was uh, the practice at the time of, well, for uh, mourning or for lamentation. I'm not sure. But she goes with wet hair and wet clothes to the Buddha in the middle of the day. The Buddha asks her, Visaka, why are you here in the middle of the day? Usually the Buddha is practicing in the middle of the day. And she says, my dear grandchild has died. And he says to her, would you like to have as many children and grandchildren as in the nearby town, Savati? And she says, yes. And then he asks her, but how many people in Savati die every day? 
And she responds, well, sometimes 10 people die in Savati, sometimes nine people die a day, sometimes eight people die a day. She works her works the way down to Savati is never free from people dying. So the Buddha responds, so what do you think, Visaka? Would you ever be free of wet clothes and hair? No, revered sir, enough of my having so many children and grandchildren. <laughs> right, so I think this kind of like the death of a child and a grandchild, of course it's not unique to women, but this type of a teaching that is given to her is in her role as a mother and a grandmother, and she comes to him in this role too. So this is another way in which the, um, the teachings are unique for the kind of the societal role of, for women at this time, for lay women. But in that first teaching included to um, fulfill your expectations at home was this idea of being generous. And you may be wondering, why, does, why are there six suttas that are addressed to Visaka? That is because she is acknowledged for being the most generous lay woman. Not only did she regularly invite the Buddha and his monastics to meals, but she donated a lot of property as well. And there are dozens of suttas that take place at this property. So it was a favored place for the Sangha and allowed them to um, congregate and to practice and to give teachings. But Visaka is not the only woman who is generous. There's another woman who is generous who has a little bit different role in society, and that is Ambapali. And um, if you, those of you who looked at the handout, you can see that she, after me, is going to talk a little bit more about Ambapali. But I'm going to talk about her role um, earlier in her life when she is a beautiful courtesan. And she is devoted to the Buddha, and she is very um, independent and confident. And when she learns that the Buddha is nearby in town, in the outskirts of town, she wants to go see him. So she gets in her chariot and drives there. This is very unusual. In the suttas, we usually sing princes, kings, prime ministers in chariots. This is the only time that I'm aware of that has a woman in a chariot. And there may be other somebody's driving, I don't know, but it's, this, it's uh, presented as if she were driving. So she drives in her chariot to go see the Buddha, sees him, receives a teaching, we don't know what the teaching was, and at the end she invites him and his monastics for a meal the following day. The Buddha agrees. She's very happy and excited. And we don't know if it's due to the teaching she received or if it's because the Buddha is going to be accepting a meal. But when she leaves, she apparently is driving very fast because she comes upon a group of young men, the Lichavis. And the um, sutta preserves that she met them wheel to wheel, yoke to yoke, axle to axle. And they say, Ambapali, why are you driving like this? And she says, because the, me, uh, the Buddha has agreed to take a meal from me tomorrow. And the Lichavi men were um, upset because they wanted to offer a meal to the Buddha for the next day. So they figure if they offer her money, gladly she will give it up. 
Ambapali, will you accept 100,000 pieces in exchange for um, allowing us to provide the meal to the Buddha instead? And she says, if you, don't, if you were to give me all the money in the entire city, it would still not be enough. I will not give up this opportunity to offer a meal to the monk and the monastics. So the Lichavis were very angry, and the suttas say that they snapped their fingers. We've been beaten by the mango woman. We've been cheated by the mango woman. And they were quite upset. Maybe I should say that Amba Pali is named after mango. Amba is the word for mango. So she does um, offer the meal to the Buddha and his monastics, and afterwards she donates a big grove to him. And there are a number of suttas that take place that are um, in this grove. So here's another um, uh, example of a laywoman who happens to be very uh, independent and confident and isn't uh, dissuaded by these young men in the area, her persuader, and she's but devoted to her practice and to the Buddha. But of course, Ambapali is not the only uh, independent lay woman who is devoted to the Buddha. There's also a um, preserved Nandamata. So lest you think that way, lay uh, women are only like offering meals or um, practicing uh, during the observance days, Nandamata was telling, um, was speaking out loud, chanting or reciting um, some texts, the Parayana, which is the last part of the Sutta Napata. Apparently she's saying this out loud, and one of the Deva kings hears her and is um, quite impressed and comes to visit her and says to her, um, the monks, Sariputta Mughalana, these are the Buddha's chief uh, monks, will be in town in the next day, and why don't you offer them a meal on my behalf? And she readily agrees. So that she sends a servant out to invite uh, Sariputta and Mughalana. When they arrive the next day, she offers a meal, and they ask, how did you know that we were going to be here? And she says, oh, the day the king told me. <laughs> it's astounding, Nandamata. It's amazing, Nandamata, that you can talk to a Deva king. She says, that's not the only thing that's uh, <laughs> astounding. <laughs> and she tells them about her meditation prowess, that she can um, enter into the jhanas at will. And they are astounded with this. And she talks about um, how she was able to re- keep some composure even with the death of her son and the death of her husband. And that she, well, since the time she had been married, had never in her thoughts had ever um, transgressed against her husband. So here is a woman who is an um, independent and very dedicated practitioner and acknowledged by um, both the Deva king and the um, senior monastics as being an accomplished practitioner. But when she talks about it, she also kind of brings in some of her domestic life too, and about talking about her son and talking about her husband in terms of her behavior. I'm looking at the time. Um, I'm deciding whether I should say one more story.
about how um, some of the, maybe I'll say this um, a short little story about Dananjani. So this was a, a wife of a, a Brahmin who is a very dedicated practitioner. Um, when she was bringing the meal to her husband, again, right, a kind of a domestic setting, she trips. And instead of saying a, an expletive, like I might say, she says, oh, blessed to the, no, homage to the blessed one, the arhat and worthy one. Arhat and enlightened one. Her husband is livid. She is angry. He is a, a Brahmin, which is a, one of the other Buddhist, uh, sorry, the non-Buddhist traditions at that time. And here is her wife who is paying homage to um, another religious leader. She, the, her husband says, for the slightest thing, this wretched woman spouts out praise of that ascetic. Now, wretched woman, I'm going to refute that doctrine of that teacher of yours. So her husband wants to show her that, in fact, this uh, Gautama, the ascetic, isn't so great after all. And he goes to enter into a debate with the Buddha. So it was a very common at the time that kind of like different religious leaders would have a debate. And it starts with the person initiating the debate to ask a question. And the stakes were high for the rules of debate were that the person who lost would have to become a student of the person who won. And because these are Buddhist scriptures, you can imagine the Buddha never loses, right? In these. <laughs> so the husband is very angry and goes to um, see the Buddha and he asks him, having slain what, does one sleep soundly? Having slain what, does one not sorrow? What is one thing, O Gotama, whose killing you approve? You can imagine the husband is maybe... I'm saying this as if it were verse, but maybe he's saying it with a little bit uh, more animated way. Here's the Buddha. We can imagine maybe very calmly, he says, having slain anger, one sleeps soundly. Having slain anger, one does not sorrow. The killing of anger, O Brahman, with its poisoned root and honey tip, this is the killing the noble ones praise. The husband was so impressed with this teaching that um, he decided to ordain right there and then. <laughs> and then the suttas say that he continued to practice and became an arhat. And all because of his wife, who during her domestic duties tripped and happened to say the Buddha's words. So in this way, I wanted to bring a few stories of some of these lay women into the room with us. They are a part of our tradition and have been, you know, for thousands of years. There aren't as many suttas directed towards them. We can um, postulate why. Um, There's a number of reasons why we can imagine. The obvious one being that the suttas are preserved by um, the monastics. That's an obvious, uh, by the, mostly the male monastics. Additionally, that um, it would have been unbecoming for um, the Buddha to be alone with a lay woman. It seems like he was with Visaka, but probably he wasn't. There were others around. And we can imagine that um, a lay woman was there in the presence of some men. 
And it would been, would have could have been the convention that the most senior person would have been the one that was mentioned. If there was maybe somebody there, a subordinate who didn't have a big speaking role, maybe wasn't mentioned in the suttas. So those are perhaps some reasons why we can imagine this. But with that, um, I thank you for your attention, and I'd be happy to answer some questions. Thank you, Diana. You may not know this, but I'm curious if anything is known about what happened to her. To Visaka? To Visaka afterwards. Yeah, so she's um, in the Teriapadana. And so we do know a little bit about her. And the, the, she's part of this group of uh, seven sisters. But in the Teriapadana, um, she's not a nun. She is still a lay person. So that's my understanding of what happens to her. She remains a devoted follower, but um, doesn't ordain. Thank you. On one occasion, um, because of the natural disturbance that arises from some of the um, things that we encounter in the sutta, I um, counted up the number of times that a teaching is directed, whether it be a woman or whether it be a man, this teaching is for you. And there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of teachings that have that um, indication of, of universality. Yes, yes, thank you. I think that um, I, uh, historically in part of the scholarship, there's been some of the suttas that are feel uncomfortable, that have an androcentric or a misogynistic tone, and those tend to get be highlighted and talked about. But there's, a whole, there's so many suttas, right? There's a big uh, collection of things there. And so we can choose which ones we look at and which ones we want to emphasize. Diana, as you uh, tell us, describe the suttas, um, there's a lot of irony and wit and cleverness, humor, uh, as you tell them. And my question is, um, is that in the sutta as it's written, or is this in the way you interpret it? (laughs) That's uh, That's a fair question. It's my interpretation. I'm not um, adding things that aren't there, but my tone of voice, um, things that, that I'm suggesting, you know, leading kind of like part of the humor there, but I'm not adding elements that aren't there. So I, it's entirely possible that other people would read the same things as I did and not find them interesting or amusing or anything like this. Yeah. So when you told the story about um, the fellow who goes to debate the the Buddha and then he uh, just ordains right there on the spot, you know what I'm thinking. What happened to her? (laughs) I had this idea too. So it reminds me actually of another sutta where um, the husband comes home and 
in, in a way that's kind of reminds us of the, the story of the Buddha, in a way. Um, the husband comes home, and his wife has just given birth to a son. And he's there to tell her that he is just ordained um, as a follower of the Buddha. And she says to him, what are you thinking? <laughs> you know, we have a son. Like, okay, that's it. That's what we live for. We have a son. What, what's going to happen to your wife and your son? And he says to her, all good men leave their wives and their children. Right, we have over 6,000 suttas, so there's bound to be things like this in there too, right? Um, in contemporary uh, tales, maybe of the um, sutras, we get the fourfold sangha idea. So um, it's not so called out that there's four wings. Can you talk to that about how the sangha actually functioned with all four? I can talk a little bit about um, that in the suttas. Um, most commonly we talk about it in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. That is the sutta um, that chronicles the last months of the Buddha's life. And um, Mara comes to talk to him and say, well, you know, you said you were going to die when the four sanghas were, um, I don't remember the exact words, but something <coughs> established. That is of uh, lay women, nuns, lay men, and monks. So, and then the, the Buddha does die, so our understanding is that right there were these four sanghas that were established. But I'm not sure if there's something more that you would like me to say? Well, maybe not so much textual, but maybe um, is there historical information about how these people gathered around oh. that time? Yeah, that's very interesting. I am not aware of anything about lay women coming together and like practicing together. I think that their lives were pretty uh, tied to that home and kind of the domestic duties. Um, of course, I've just finished telling stories of you know that refute that that talk about women who did go to see the Buddha. But I imagine that these um, observance days was probably the most common way in which the lay practitioners would come together and practice there at the monastery, not unlike how it is today in Asia and here. So that's there aren't in the suttas a, more than that about there really isn't anything about uh, lay women coming together that I know of. I don't know if any of you know anything about this. No. Yeah, right, not the layman either. Thank you. In the, in the suttas themselves, <clears throat> are there stories of lay women ordaining? We have the story of Mahapajapati. Yes. But in, in, in and then uh, related to that, there's... Um, now I don't remember if this is in the suttas or in the commentary, where I think it may be in the commentary where oh, two women that probably were Jain followers, where the, Biko, uh, the Buddha had said to him, come, Bhikkhuni. But that may be in the commentary. I don't know if you guys may know. Do you guys know? 
It's in the Terigata. Okay, so it's in the canon. So if we consider that a type of ordination, but um, she may know better because she's going to be talking about uh, the nuns and the suttas. And the other question I had is that um, you mentioned that one of the ways to be uh, was it a good wife was to uh, uh, properly manage the slaves and servants. <clears throat> so it makes me think that uh, it's being addressed to particular women of particular status in society, not the women who were slaves or servants, but rather those who were wealthy enough to, to uh, you know, to have slaves and servants. Absolutely. And uh, and the story of the woman who. Uh, you know, trips. Uh, I got the impression that she also comes from a very wealthy clan, the Brahmin clan. Um, she comes from a clan that we can tell from elsewhere yeah. in the sutras is a well-known clan yeah. and is considered amongst the Brahmins yeah. a uh, very high, yeah. uh, with hierarchy, yeah. a senior one. But we don't. We're not given details in these stories about her and her. Uh, and, and if I think back in the sutras, the only time I can think of when there's a uh, somewhat of a woman of low class, low status, is a story of the maid in Kali, and um, and there's kind of a mixed kind of message there. But but so so you think that uh, when the Buddha was addressing women, that he was addressing women of a particular social class? Absolutely, he was. Um, as I said, with this uh, Visaka was the one of the greatest. Um, donors, and the fact that we're going to see Ambapali later means that she's kind of a preeminent woman as well. And then the story that you talk about that includes a lay woman who is um, a servant is a story that's told from the Buddha. The Buddha says, there once was, or, so we, it's a little bit different. It's not like to her, or it's not teaching to her or something. So we don't know if that was a teaching story or if it was actually, he's just telling about an, an event that happened in the past. I believe there are uh, two of the women of the Terigata who attained arhatship as laywomen and then ordained. Oh, great. Thank you, Meg. Um, I also just wanted to mention in the same sutta where Mahapachapati is ordained, some 500 or at least lots of oh, Sakyan yes. women ordained at the same time. Yes, that she shows up at the gate with all these women. Yes, yes, thank you. The person who um, uh, chronicled the 26 suttas uh, for women um, that were lay people, um, what was his name? John Kelly. John Kelly. Did he also chronicle um, uh, the suttas uh, for nuns? No. No. His um, project was to look at how lay people are portrayed in the suttas, what kind of teachings they receive, and you know, to look at them in certain different ways. And in that project, he also looked at gender, how many of those were men and how many were women. Has anyone done that? To look at how nuns are portrayed? Mm-hmm. Well, she's going to talk after me, and this is going to be the topic of her talk, oh, so the okay, next one. <laughs> we, we organized it this way, specifically. So This is going to have to be the last one and then she's going to be up. Um, I just uh, feel a little uncomfortable with the, with the proposition that the Buddha taught mainly to um, wealthy or upper class women and uh, I, I have a, a vague memory but I'm not in any means a scholar of, of a story of him waiting to teach uh, uh, the weaver's daughter because he saw that she was ready that with the teaching she would become a, a stream enterer and 
waiting and waiting until she was ready to come and actually hear the teaching. And uh, I certainly have the impression of his um, very strong egalitarianism of, of like cutting through the caste system. And I think it would be much more likely that um, teachings, uh, teachings that were related to lower class women and maybe men just got dropped out of the canon along the way. I would agree that there's probably a giant selection bias happening here, right? But also we could imagine that it may be that some of those women who didn't um, have the freedom to move around and to go different places, maybe they were stuck in the household taking care of the kids and the whatever. So they just didn't have as much opportunity to go hear the Buddha speak. So that could be a reason too. So not necessarily that the Buddha had a preference, but it could be either a bias about which ones get saved and who just had access at that time. Thank you, Diana. Okay, thank you.